Welcome back, everybody, to the Liberty Block. We have a special guest today. He's Michael Ackerman, candidate for Congress from North Carolina's 5th District. I've got Steve Axelman here, also helping with the questioning. Uh, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little about you? Thank you very much, Ed and Steve. I really do appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here with everyone. Um, again, uh, as Ed mentioned, my name is Michael Ackerman, and I am running for Congress in North Carolina's 5th District as a Republican. Um, I'm originally uh, born and raised in South Carolina. Uh, I'm a veteran of the United States Naval Reserve and the United States Marine Corps. I have a bachelor's degree from Appalachia State University in history secondary education, which led me to my first career in education. And then I went into law enforcement in Arizona uh, and was a police officer in Arizona and South Carolina for a total of 14 years combined. And my family and I, which, which includes my beautiful wife, Leslie, and my beautiful daughter, Sarah, we moved back up to North Carolina um, in uh, 2019. Uh, I always wanted to come back to the mountains of North Carolina, and I fell in love with uh, the Boone area where Appalachia State is located. And we had the opportunity to be able to move back and raise our daughter in this beautiful country up here. And we took it. And I serve now as a juvenile court counselor for the North Carolina Department of Public Safety. So I think that's me in a nutshell. Tell us why you're running, why are you running for Congress? What has Virginia Fox done that impels you to challenge her and say that she's not qualified to be, to be returned to Congress? That's an excellent question, and thanks for asking, Ed. Uh, and I get that question a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that have concerned me over the years, and really the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back in my case that made me say, you know what, it's time for you to get off the sidelines and, and really try to do something to make a change is what's happened in the last, really in the last couple of years. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that, um, I'm not going to say that Ms. Fox is unqualified, um, to continue to be in Congress, but I would say that she's been in Congress since 2005 as a representative. And over that time, many things have happened within this nation, and especially in the last couple of years, that she and many of the other uh, career politicians, because that's what she is, uh, a career politician. She's been in politics for, uh, if you include her time in the state house, probably 25 years. Um, I could be off by a couple of years, but I know she's been in, she's been in Congress since 2005. You know, um, career politicians, once they uh, make that decision that they want to make that a career and stay up in Washington, D.C., um, they end up having to, for lack of a better term, sell their soul to the special interests and to the lobbyists. And over the last couple of years, we've seen what happens when we have representatives in Congress that don't truly represent the people that elected them to office. Um, we have seen on the Republican side, and, and why I'm very disappointed in our Republican leadership, we have seen uh, over the last few years an infiltration of a social, socialist leftist ideology that used to be a fringe ideology, and now has become mainstream and is infecting our nation. And that's not what our nation's about. And our career Republicans on, on our side of the aisle they allowed it to happen. And when I say they allowed it to happen, they didn't recognize the threat that it posed at the time. And instead of standing up to it and fighting it, 
they just kind of sat back and went about their business, went about it in the old traditional Republican playbook, you know, and didn't, and didn't stand up to it. You know, when the Democrats produced the squad, where was the Republican version of the squad? Why wasn't there noise coming from the Republican side to fight the noise that was coming from the Democratic side? And Ms. Fox in particular, you know, there have been many opportunities for her while she's been in Congress to do things to better the situations that we have encountered over the last couple of years. One in specific is in 2005, uh, I'm not sure if you remember, but there was an election commission that was uh, created after the Florida debacle between George W. Bush and Al Gore. And it was spearheaded by James Baker and Jimmy Carter. You know, your two biggest uh, leaders on both sides of the aisle politically. And they came back with their commission and we spent millions of tax dollars on this commission. And they came back with recommendations to Congress in 2005, which was Mrs. Fox's first year in Congress. And those recommendations to help solidify and strengthen our elections were things like um, the integrity and security of voting machines, doing away with or reducing the amount of mail-in voting, voter ID, things of that nature. And Congress did nothing with it. And Ms. Fox was in Congress at that time. She could have introduced a bill she could have worked with others in Congress to introduce a bill to accept the committee's recommendations. And if they had, we may not have had the problems that we had in 2020 because many of the recommendations they provided were a lot of the problems that we had. Another issue I have with her is she claims to be a fiscal conservative. However, we're facing a, 30, a soon to be $30 trillion debt problem in this country. And she just sided with all the rhino Republicans in the House and reinstated earmarks. She voted to reinstate earmarks. You know, I, I, don't, I don't personally agree with earmarks. And I know there's arguments for and against. But when you're 29 trillion approaching $30 trillion in debt, I think that's a bad time to reinstate writing blank checks to bills. Because that's really what an earmark is. And that's not what a fiscal conservative is going to do. You know, fiscal conservatives are going to worry about balanced budgets. We're going to worry about um, uh, spending taxpayer dollars in a, in a responsible way. We're going to worry about limiting our government. You know? And so I, I just believe that once you've been in Congress as long as she has, she ends up having to give herself up into the establishment because she's more concerned about being reelected so that she can maintain her seat than she is with doing what's right for her constituency. Are there any members, any Republican members of Congress that you admire, that you think are worthy of being reelected? Re Who would you want to associate with if and when you get elected? So, and uh, thank you for that question as well. Um, there are some congressmen that I, and, and I should say Congress people, congressmen, congresswomen, uh, that I do um, appreciate very much because they speak out and they say the hard truths. Jim Jordan is one. Lauren Boebert is another. Marjorie Taylor Greene is another. They're not afraid to say the things that need to be said, whether they're popular or not. You know, sometimes the truth is not easy to hear, but it's always the truth. And, you know, even, even whether or not I agree or disagree with their point, 
I applaud the fact that they are brave enough to say the things that need to be said because it spurs discussion. It spurs debate. And unfortunately, a lot of times, because they don't necessarily always play by the rules of the Republican establishment, not only are they attacked from the left, but they're also sometimes attacked from within. And that's a shame because I think the people of this nation, and I know for a fact the people of the 5th District in North Carolina, want someone who's going to tell it like it is. They're tired of political correctness. They're tired of politispeak, say one thing, do something else. They're hungry. We're hungry for someone who's just going to, you know, tell the truth, say it right out. Well, in the interest of telling it like it is and telling us the truth and asking you about fiscal, you're, you're talking about fiscally, fiscal conservatism, what programs specifically do you think need to be cut at the federal level? And how would you, how would you come about, how would you go about balancing the budget? That's another great question. Thank you. Um, so the first thing that I would want to cut at the federal level is the Department of Education. I don't believe that the U.S. Department of Education serves a, a purpose that is beneficial for the education of our children, for the reason why it was founded. Do you know what uh, now, its budget? Do you know what the Department of Education's budget is? Off the top of my head, no. Uh, I'll be honest right. with you; I don't know. Um, but I, I do know that it is millions of tax dollars that are being spent for an agency that has brought us some really horrible ideas within education. Um, first, there was no child left behind, which was a disaster. And then became then came Common Core, which was another disaster. They, they, also, they also pushed for doing away with teaching cursive writing, you know, and then they've had to bring it back because they realized, well, you know, kids can't sign a check if they don't know how to sign their name. They can't sign contracts if they don't learn cursive writing, you know. And, and now, most recently, critical race theory, um, which are, is just the worst ideological thing to come across education um, in, in history, honestly. The, where I see the Department of Education could have some benefit and a much more uh, drilled down uh, role would be maybe for grants or research purposes. A state wants to know what would be a good way to target a certain uh, group of learners. They could, you know, ask the Department of Education for some help in research or some, maybe some grant funding. But as far as for policymaking, I think that should be left at the state and local level. You know, last night I was in um, uh, Alexander County speaking with some wonderful people down there. And uh, we started talking about the fact that in Alexander County, they didn't have vocational programs like they need for that county. And that's because decisions are being made at the federal level that affect the local school boards. And I think it should be left to the state and the local school boards for that. Another agency, obviously, that should be looked at, I apologize, uh, okay. would be the IRS. The IRS. The IRS is a behemoth. Um, it has way too much power. Um, again, just like the Department of Education, you know, I, I'm not going to go up to D.C. and I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say, well, when I get up there, we're going to do away with these, you know, agencies. We know that's not true. We know that's not possible, but we can scale them back and we can, we can work to scale them back. You know, one of the things that we can do to help scale back the IRS 
is simplify our tax code. You know, if we just simplify the tax code, which is something that can be done, it's been talked about before, but again, you can start getting the lobbyists and the special interests involved. You know, they don't want to do that because you're talking about, you know, the possibility of certain jobs being, um, of going away. And that would be, you know, a result of scaling back the IRS. But it can be done and it should be done because our tax dollars are being, are being spent in, in such a, uh, just a dishonest way. And they're being collected in an even more dishonest way. You know, they keep saying we're going to tax the rich more. We know what's going to happen. The rich aren't going to pay more in taxes. If they pay one dollar more, do we want the rich to pay more in taxes? Do you? Do we want them to pay more in taxes? There was a study. Um, gosh, right off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I, I do know that there was a study done. Uh, I believe the corporate tax rate, or the I'm sorry, the the upper level tax rate during the Reagan years was extremely high. And when they well, looked- Reagan lowered, Reagan lowered the top rate from 70% to 28%. Okay, so I apologize. So it was before Reagan. What they did, what they found was that you actually got more actual tax dollars from the wealthy paid with a lower tax rate. Because when the tax rate is 70%, guess what they're gonna do with their money? They're going to put right. it in tax shelters. They're going to send it overseas. They're going to put it in why places. Do wanna, of, why do we want to increase the amount of money the government gets anyway? I mean, well, I, shouldn't we just keep lowering the tax rate? Well, we, we definitely need to hold the government accountable for the taxes that they are collecting, which we haven't done. And you're absolutely right. That's just one thing that politicians and the government think can solve any problem. Well, we'll just throw more money at it. I mean, look at this infrastructure bill that's coming out. Now they're wanting to spend $3.5 trillion on a budget. They think more money is going to solve the problem. That's not what solves the problem. It's proper money management that solves problems. And that's the problem we have in government right now is there's no proper money management. You know, there was a, I don't know if you remember the movie Dave. Uh, it was many years ago, Charles Grodin, Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein played uh, a... Um, a character actor who looked like the president and they used him as a double and the president, you know, short, long story short, Charles Grodin played an accountant and Dave wanted to fund a particular program. And he brought Charles Grodin in to look at the books and Charles Grodin, even though it was a movie, it said something that was very true. He said, if we ran our company, the way the government runs their accounting, we'd all be in jail. And it's true. I mean, you look at what we do with Social Security, right? Think of your mutual fund was was run the same way Social Security is run. You know, we don't get a prospectus um, when we start investing into Social Security. We don't get quarterly reports to know uh, what is what's our fee structure, where's our money being invested, what's the rate of return. We're not told any of that. All we're told constantly by these politicians is that Social Security is going to run out. Well, it's going to run out because the politicians keep stealing from it every year. That's their personal slush fund to, to, to fund their own, um, you know, personal pet projects. So to answer your question, it's not necessarily we don't need more money. We need better management of the money we have. Well, let me follow up on that. Um, can we really balance the budget without 
cutting Social Security, Medicare, and other entitlements. The Social Security Trust Fund is funded by IOU notes right now, as is the Medicare Trust Fund. Yes. The money has already been spent. If we're looking to balance the budget, is there any way to do it without cutting those, those programs and other entitlement programs? And well, aren't, first, from, aren't those things off budget? I'm not I'm sorry. sure. Isn't one of the games Congress plays is that a lot of these programs aren't even part of the budget? Just like they say we're in debt 20 trillion, but we're really in debt 200 trillion. Well, even if they are off budget, I mean, the point is we want to stop borrowing, right? So can we stop borrowing if we, without cutting entitlement programs? So the first thing I do want to say, Ed, and, and, and this isn't a slam on you or anything, but I don't like it when people say Social Security is an entitlement program because we're not entitled to it. We're forced to invest in it. It's a forced retirement program. You know, we've been, you and I have been investing in it since we started working. I started working when I was 15 years old and paying into this social security program. So I'm not entitled. I've been forced to, you know, to participate in this retirement program. So I just, I, I want to make sure that anybody watching knows that I believe that it is not an entitlement program. But to answer your question, yes, I do believe we can do that. Because, you know, that's always what politicians like to throw out there is these, uh, you know, these uh, triggers for people. Oh, well, if we cut the budget, we're going to lose Social Security. Think about all the other programs that are out there that we fund. How about we cut funding for abortion in Pakistan? How about we start cutting uh, the National Endowment for the Arts that a majority of Americans in this country don't even get any benefit from. How about we start looking at those kinds of programs and looking at cutting there? You know, they say that you become a millionaire by uh, saving your dollars, but you go broke by wasting your pennies. And that's very true with what we've done in this nation is we've gone broke by wasting our pennies. We, we throw out the big, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, as the scary things that if we talk about cutting the budget, that's going to be lost. But people aren't paying attention to literally the thousands of other programs that are costing this nation hundreds of billions of dollars every single year. So yes, I do believe you can balance the budget without losing Social Security, without losing Medicare, without losing Medicaid. I think it's very possible to do. But again, it takes someone to look at it through the eyes of an accountant, a true accountant, and prioritizing what's important for this nation. Now, I will tell you this, Ed, to do it now, to do it today, is much harder than it was 20 years ago. I mean, we're in a mess. And that's, you know, uh, we're dealing with all kinds of problems that affect our national budget. We have a southern border that's porous, and we're bringing all these uh, the hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants into this country that now we're going to have to support, you know, that, that is a strain on our economy. Um, so it is a much more difficult uh, challenge now than it was maybe 20 years ago, but it can be done. Before I ask some questions about your positions that you put on your website, Steve, do you have any questions you want to throw in? I got a whole bunch of questions. Um, number one, would you be caught dead shopping in Walmart? 
unfortunately, yes, you'll catch me in Walmart. We only have we have a Walmart here in Boone, and uh, so we do do some shopping in Walmart. Uh, so, would you consider yourself a deplorable? A deplorable? De you mean Hillary Clinton's definition of a deplorable? Yes. Basically, yes. Okay. Yes. Would you be a proud deplorable? Uh, yes. Okay. I yeah. Am. Right answer. <laughs> okay, um, who else is running in this against the incumbent? Are there other people in this primary? There are two others. Um, a gentleman by the name of Mike Magnata, who is a dentist out of Morganton, and another gentleman by the name of Jeff Gregory, who's out of Shelby, North Carolina. But I don't think either of them have registered with the FEC at this point. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I love what you said about running against any incumbent. It's I believe if I went to Congress, I'd be a crook too. Um, I think it's almost irresistible if you hang around there long enough. Uh, Massey maybe has the right idea. If you go home every single weekend and actually meet real people, um, I think one of the differences I found spending a few days in Wyoming and lots of days in New Hampshire is people actually know their representatives, keeps them a little bit honest. People who go to Washington lose all touch. Um, I'm in New York where no one has asked anybody in Congress a question probably in a hundred years because the minute you ask them anything besides aren't you the most wonderful person in the history of the universe, their guards and handlers say, I'm sorry, the congressman has a very important meeting in Washington right now. So I think losing touch with your constituency is a very big deal. Um, what you said as far as abolishing departments, I think there's something like 400 plus uh, federal departments, and from my from my nickel, we could abolish almost all of them. Uh, I believe that states need to work more with other states without the federal government. I think most of the federal government should be abolished, but that's that's kind of where I'm at. So those are my questions for the moment. You can go ahead, Ed. I'll come back. All right. Let me let me actually follow up on uh, Steve's question about being a de proud deplorable. Um, President Trump has been touting the vaccines that he helped create. He's also touted the success that uh, he believes he uh, had in saving lives from shutting down the country for 15 days to flatten the curve. Uh, do you agree with President Trump on those issues? As far as, uh, as far as do I agree with how he handled uh, the COVID response or Excuse me. I think honestly, and, and I'll tell you right now, I, I support President Trump's policies 100%. I voted for him both times. And if he were to run again, I would support him again um, based on who potentially could run. But I mean, I could change my mind depending on, you know, who puts their um, hat in the ring. I try to look at every uh, election as and the people who run as individuals. Um, but as far as, you know, saving lives and who didn't save lives? I mean, that became so political so quickly. The, the bottom line is, no matter what President Trump did, it was going to be wrong, right? We remember when he was touting the vaccines and the same people who were trying to force the vaccines down our throat today were telling us back then that the vaccines couldn't be trusted under President Trump. Um, I, think that, I think that his administration did a very good job uh, overall with the handling of the pandemic. Could there have been things done better? Absolutely. We, and, you know, and we're human beings. We should always be looking to um, improve anything that we do, especially responses to a national crisis like a, a pandemic. Uh, 
Um, my biggest, my biggest criticism, and again, this goes back to career politicians, is they they allowed this pandemic to become hyper politicized, to where you've got bureaucrats making decisions that only elected officials should be making, and then you've got elected officials making decisions that really citizens should be making. Um, our lieutenant governor said it perfectly the other night uh, when I saw him speak. Our job, and if I'm elected into Congress, my job is to make sure that my constituents and the people of this nation have all the information available to them to look at, to research, so that they can make an informed decision for themselves and their family. And if they decide that they want something like a vaccine, then it's my job as a legislator to make sure that those resources are available to them to if they decide they want to have a vaccine. It's not my job to make that choice for them, especially when it's you're talking about a virus that in all shapes and forms has the same lethality rate as a common flu. And that's been reported over and over and over again, data-wise. You know, we're now at a point where we have the lowest death rate regarding COVID, and they're trying to scare us back into these mandates and into these lockdowns. And, you know, uh, our school district just voted to reinstate mask mandates when children, by, by the CDC's own data, I check it every day, CDC's own data shows that a child's chance of dying from COVID is 0.001%. No, so they have a 99.99% chance of survival if they contract COVID. They only have a, a uh, I believe it's 1.7% chance of even contracting COVID. But yet they're, they're trying to scare us. Again, I believe... I strongly believe that it's because politicians don't want to admit that they were wrong. Every single projection that they made about the virus, remember when they said it was going to kill 2.2 million people in the first couple of months? Remember they said that in the beginning? And President Trump was going to kill 2.2 million people. Now, one death is one death too many. And I'm not trying to make light of anyone who's died, especially from something that could have been prevented. Well, we've just reached 623,000 deaths in this nation at 18 months. Now, that's a lot, but it's not 2.2 million. You know, and the reality is that it's here to stay. It's a virus. And the fact that, you know, politicians have turned this hyper-political, that you can't even trust medical professionals right now because you don't know whether they're following the science are they following their political beliefs? So it's it, it, it's scary in a lot of ways. Um, but as far as Trump goes, I think his he and his administration did a did a good job in handling their response. Yes, there were areas I'm sure that they could have improved upon, but I think overall they handled it the best way they knew. Before I move on to some of your position paper uh, positions that you outline on your website, um, what committees are you interested in serving on if you're elected to Congress? Well, I'd like to serve on committees that obviously I have some background in. You know, the Education and Labor Committee. I'm a former educator. I would like to serve on um, the. Uh, I would like to serve on the Budget Committee. 
Um, I think we need common sense people on a budget committee. Um, I would like to serve on the Homeland Security Committee uh, because of my uh, long experience in law enforcement. Uh, those are some of the committees that I would like to, to have an opportunity to serve on. On your website, you say that you're a supporter of the First Amendment. Uh, I think everyone who's not a Democrat would probably agree with that. Um, what in particular threats to the First Amendment do you see today and how could you, what, what would you be able to do as a member of Congress to protect us from those threats? Well, it's obviously, I mean, honestly, today what we have is the threat from the left, and it's been coming for a long time. I started raising alarms back in 2008 when President Obama was elected and we started, and it actually goes back further, but that's when I really got involved and started to notice it um, with political correctness. That's when they started talking about this idea of political correctness. You know, well, we can't say this now because it's not politically correct, and, you know, somebody might get offended, and and I started saying, you know, we can't go down this slope. We can't go down this slippery slope. We can't start regulating words um, to that extent. Um, and we find ourselves today now where you can't, you know, um, you can't, you can't say um, mailman without somebody getting offended. You know, you can't, you have a lot of comedians who can't even do their, can't even do their shows because people get so offended um, by it. So, you know, the First Amendment is absolutely uh, under attack, and it's under attack from the people who claim to want to, you know, to want to be uh, anti-fascist, but they're the ones who are, are, are creating this um, attack against the First Amendment. You know, offensive speech, and this was, you know, the, AC, um, the ACLU used to be um, really big on the First Amendment. You know, and they used to say offensive speech was the most important speech that you should protect because it forces us to look inward within ourselves. It forces us to take a look at um, who we are. It, it forces uh, us to talk about things, you know, and if in, you start saying, well, offensive speech is offensive and, you know, we shouldn't allow it anymore. Well, who makes the decision of what's offensive? Because what offends you, Ed, may not offend me. And just because it offends you, does that make it offensive speech? You know, at some point, we're not even going to be able to talk about, um, you know, the color of the sky. So what am I going to do to help protect the First Amendment? Is I'm going to stand up and, and shout from the loudest hilltops from Washington, D.C., all the way down here to the 5th District. Then anytime that anybody wants to sit there and say you can't say this or they want to prevent somebody from speaking or or not, you know, or or uh, promote a certain person for speaking, but keep other people from speaking just because they don't agree with them. I'm going to stand up and yell as loud as I possibly can and raise as much awareness towards it as I absolutely possibly can. I'll use every means possible, whether it be through digital media, whether it be through in-person contact, whether it be going on the mainstream media and, and raising those alarms, coming back to the district and working with our local folks you know, that's something our representatives don't do. You know, one of the strongest efforts we have right now going for us in this country, especially against critical race theory and these mandates, is the grassroots efforts that are coming out of the local, um, the local populations. And our representatives who have a tremendous amount of resources 
and I can say this, our representative, Ms. Fox, she has a tremendous amount of resources, but where is she at these local school board meetings? Where are her people organizing um, uh, other constituents to fight against this kind of tyranny, to fight against the attack on the First Amendment? Where are they? And so that's one of the things that I would do is I would come back locally and make sure that I help to organize uh, the local movements. What do you say? What do you say to people who say that the pro, the biggest uh, perpetrators of uh, attacks on free speech are private entities like Facebook and Twitter and and even private businesses that want to kick people out if for what they say or if they're not vaccinated? Uh, does does the government have any role in? Uh, allowing dissent in those situations or is that something that the private market the private marketplace has to address itself um great question thank you uh, what i'd like to do is separate out big tech versus a private business because what big tech is doing is they're hiding behind um this idea that they're just platforms and that they don't fall under the same type of uh, guidelines and and restrictions as our newspapers and media and they hide behind that, but yet they're censoring people. They're censoring. Uh, in fact, I just had a video uh, that I was sharing that a doctor, a real doctor, I researched him, was at a school board meeting talking about the ineffectiveness of vaccines and masks for children and why we shouldn't mandate those things. And he was providing actual scientific data and YouTube took it off because it went against their guidelines because he had the nerve to talk against what is, you know, this mainstream belief of what's going on with COVID. And so they hide behind this, um, this shroud of saying that, well, we're just platforms, you know, you can't, you can't regulate us the same way that you regulate media companies. Well, we need to stand up to them and say, look, if you're going to be a platform and you want to enjoy those benefits, then you've got to stop all censorship, period. You can't, you can't do that right? Because if you do, then guess what? You're a media company. You're going to fall under the guise of the FCC and you're going to have to, you're going to have to uh, abide by those rules and regulations. So that's number one. Um, and I do believe that uh, our career politicians have allowed these big tech uh, guys and gals to just to run amok. And now they, they, they've become such a huge um, monster and I, and I say monster because that's what they've become, that I think many politicians in Washington, D.C. are afraid uh, to stand up to them. They're afraid to say to them, look, you know, you can't have it both ways. You're either going to be a platform and not censor anything, or you're going to have to be regulated like a regular media company under the FCC and follow all those regulations. You don't get it both ways. Now, as far as private businesses, um, you know, we have federal laws that say you can't discriminate against color, uh, you can't discriminate because of religion and, and things of that nature. Those are federally protected um, uh, people, not people, but they're, fe you know, they're federal laws, you know. And um, so private businesses are not allowed to discriminate on those, on, on that basis. Beyond that, um, you know, if a private business wants to make a choice 
that, hey, you know, you can't come in unless you're vaccinated and proof of vaccination. You know, honestly, whether I agree with it or not, I'm a constitutionalist. Their right to do that is protected by the Constitution. It's a private entity. It's a private business. So I, as a consumer, have a right to say, you know what? Well, I'm not going to shop at your store anymore. I'm not going to eat at your restaurant anymore because I don't agree with that stance. So I don't believe the federal government should be um, drilling down to that specificity when it comes to privately owned businesses. We have our general, we have our general protections. And again, uh, like Steve said, you know, the federal government doesn't need to get bigger. You know, it, the, the role of the federal government is very specifically laid out in the constitution. And so when you start talking about those kinds of things, I think um, you, you open a Pandora's box and I just, I, again, it's a slippery slope. Well, what do you say to people who, th- who, who say that it's not a private, it's not a free market right now. The government has tilted the playing field. For instance, the government shut down businesses for a year. The government has been lying to us about COVID for a year. The government has been lying to us about vaccines for a year. The government has taken away liability for the manufacturers of vaccines. Uh, the, the government has, has tilted the marketplace greatly in favor of uh, having people take the vaccines. Does that in any way alter your, what, you're, what you just said? Well, I think we're talking about two different things there. We're talking about um, government overreach when it came to this whole COVID thing. Um, you know, once uh, originally when they said we're going to uh, lock down for two weeks just to kind of get a hold of things, at, at that point I thought that was reasonable. They had no idea what this what this virus was, and they were just trying to, you know, China was lying as we now know, obviously, um, and they were trying to get a hold of it. But once those lockdowns continued and the mandates started coming, and you know, they didn't they didn't shut down business. Let's let's be real, they shut down small business. Because your big box stores remained open. Your fast food restaurants remained open. Somehow, COVID didn't spread in Walmart or Lowe's or McDonald's or, you know, any of those places. But it spread in a church. Or it spread in your locally owned uh, farmer's market. Or it spread in your local hardware store. You know, they didn't shut down business. Um, but you're absolutely right. The government did do that. And I was against it from the start. Um, you know, after the initial two weeks was was up and we started getting some data in about the virus um, and we started to understand it better, uh, you know, that's when we should have started lifting very quickly and get people back to work and get people, businesses back open. We've done some irreparable damage to the small businesses in this country, to the mindset of people in this country. We still have people who aren't working, not because there's not a job. We all know there's jobs out there that can't be filled, but they're working because they're making more money sitting on their butt at home or making the same amount of money sitting on their butt at home than they would working a job. And our small businesses are getting hammered because they can't hire people because there's nobody to hire. And so when we talk about um, the economy and private businesses, uh, you know, saying that a private business has a right to refuse service to someone 
versus the government taking control and shutting businesses down. I think we're talking about two separate things. I'm, you well, know, let I don't try and, let me let me try and make it a little closer. Then, I mean, if if the government can tell Jack Phillips that he's got to bake a cake, why can't the government also tell him you can't ask about vaccination status? The government shouldn't tell him he can't bake a cake. I understand that, but they, they, <laughs> that's why we're doing that. So why yeah. should we have a carve out only for the, for, you know, that hurts us? We, we should. going to do it. Why, why, why can't we protect our people? There shouldn't be any carve out at all. I mean, that's my stance. I mean, it's wrong no matter how, how you slice it. Um, you know, the left has been able, again, this is a problem with our career politicians on the Republican side. They've allowed this to to come in. You know, if you look at the ideology of like a Saul Alinsky, you know, Hillary Clinton, Obama, and many Soros, and many of the leadership on the Democratic, the leftist side, they follow those blueprints. And those blueprints are, aren't that you wake up one day and socialism is banging down your door and wokeness is banging down your door. No, what they do is they do a little bit at a time and they chip away at you. And they, and they have you believe, well, you know, this, this isn't so bad. Yeah, you know, I can see why, you know, if, if this, this customer wants a cake baked for their, um, I think it was a lesbian wedding and the bake shop, he doesn't want to do it because of his religious belief. Well, I mean, that's just really wrong because I, I don't personally have anything against lesbians, so I can see why that would be wrong. So the federal government should tell him. Well, when you do that, again, you're opening the Pandora's box, right? And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly how they do these things. Those, that couple, because you brought up the bake shop, that wasn't by happenstance. That was a planned event. Let's not fool ourselves. That was a planned event. You know, we can go back in history and talk about some of the greatest things in civil rights history. One being Rosa Parks on the bus. One of the one of the bravest things that somebody ever did. She didn't do that by accident. That was a planned event, right? This bake shop was a planned event. Now I'm not saying they're equal. What I'm saying is we have to stop looking at things like that as just, oh, well, it just happened and we need to look at that one particular note. There is a reason they went in there. There is a reason why they pushed it the way they did. They're trying to make substantial cultural changes to our nation. Now, some of those changes may be positive, but when you start asking the government to increase its power over people, all you're doing is you're asking for trouble. That's exactly how dictatorial nations get created. That's how socialism comes in. That's how communism comes in. Well, let me follow up on that. What's your position on free trade? And in particular, should I be allowed to buy whatever I want from China, let's say, or should the government maybe intercede and, and put some limitations on that? What about the embargo with Cuba? Are you for or against the embargo with Cuba? Should, or should people be allowed to just decide whether they want to buy or not buy from Cuba? So again, when we talk about international trade, that is one of the roles that the constitution said that the federal government um, should take a lead on, obviously, uh, you know, uh, this, the war between the states wasn't just fought over slavery. It was also fought over the, the right for the South to negotiate their own treaties to trade their cotton 
with other governments because the northern states were placing tariffs on imports and it was hurting the southern economy with their uh, exports. Um, so that was, you know, that was a big, that was a part of it. It wasn't the only part, but people don't realize that that did play a very big role, you know, states' rights versus federal rights. The Constitution is very clear on the fact that the federal government should be uh, take the lead when it, in regards to trade agreements and so forth. The federal government does have a responsibility um, to make sure that we protect our manufacturers, our farmers, our uh, anyone else who might be exporting goods and services. Um, but at the same time, we also have a responsibility to be able to provide goods and services to the people of the United States that maybe we cannot produce or maybe we can't produce at an economical rate. And there has to be a balance between the two. And that's always, and that's always a challenge, right? How do you balance uh, protecting uh, your national businesses to be able to export? Um, sorry, that's my phone. How do you protect your um, national businesses um, from uh, unfair tariffs and things of that nature. I'm sorry, I'm turning off my phone right now. I don't want it to ring again. Um, at the same time, sorry, live, live stream, right? Um, at the same time, uh, protecting uh, Americans' rights to receive different types of goods and services that we either can't produce or can't produce as um, effectively and, and at a lower a cost. You know, as far as China goes, <laughs> our our politicians are bought and paid for. Our career politicians are bought and paid for by the Chinese. We know this. You know, you can sit there and say, oh, that's a conspiracy. No, we all know this by common sense. There's There's enough information out there that shows it. You have Nike, this company that claims to be woke, to want to, you know, help the downtrodden here in this nation, but yet their their top uh, their top consumers are China, and they're producing in China with slave labor in China, where they are murdering people of uh, political differences, religious differences, ethnic differences. You know, but you know they, it's okay for you know Nike somehow does that. In the at the end of the day, my job as a representative is to make sure that I am protecting the livelihoods of the people of the fifth district because that's who I would represent. I would wanna make sure that I protect. So that means farmers, that means uh, manufacturers. So I wanna make sure that whatever legislation that I support is going to somehow benefit them and if that means we have to give and take a little bit on trade here and there, you know, we'll give and take a little bit of trade here and there. But I also, I'm sorry, I don't want to answer you. You asked me also about Cuba. And I, I don't want to be a politician that skips over answering questions. You asked about Cuba. Do I support the embargo? I support the embargo. It does not include humanitarian aid. Humanitarian aid has been able to get in and out of Cuba without any problems. Cuba itself is a communist uh, 
disaster. And they they made their bed years ago. Okay, they made their bed when when they supported the revolution with Fidel Castro, and uh, you know they became allies with Russia and Venezuela. They made their bed. But I also think that when you have a nation like they are right now screaming for freedom, we should be doing everything in our power to be able to assist them in being able to gain their freedom. Now, I'm not talking about invading Cuba. I'm talking about there's other things that we could be doing to help um, uh, remove the dictatorship and bring them back to uh, self-governance. Do you think that freedom can be spread as a sort of welfare program, or do you think people have to fight for their freedom? People have to want the freedom. It, it can't be spread as a welfare program. You know, we can't we can't impart our culture onto other cultures and expect them to react in the same way that we do. That's the problem we had in Iraq. When we went in and we helped topple Saddam Hussein, we expected, we were very ethnocentric. That was a college term I learned in anthropology. Uh, we were very ethnocentric in that we believed that us going in there and toppling Saddam Hussein was all of a sudden going to magically, you know, we're going to, woo, you're going to be free and everything's going to be great. We ignored the fact that, guess what? They're a tribal nation, right? We didn't learn from how he split up Africa. Africa is a mess, not because of Africans, but because of Europeans in the 18th and 19th century that split it up with no, no concerns to tribal boundaries. You know, that's why you have countries in Africa killing each other because you have warring tribes who have warred for thousands of years within the same boundary and you expect them to all of a sudden get along. Same thing in Iraq. When we were in Iraq, we toppled Saddam Hussein. Great, dictator's gone. We thought now freedom's going to roll in and they're all going to look at us as saviors. No, what, the exact opposite happened. It was a disaster. Why? Because we thought as Americans, we didn't think as people of Iraq. We didn't think of tribes members, the Sunni and the Shiite. <coughs> we didn't think in that way. And so freedom is not something that is welfare. Freedom is not something that you, uh, we go into Cuba and we topple the dictatorship and go, now you're free and, you know, be happy just like we are in America. No, that's, that's just not reality. With respect, going back to China for a second, you said that you'd see your job in Congress as protecting the livelihoods of the people that are in your district. What do you say to someone who says that the main import that we bring from China is communism and dictatorship? What, what do you say to someone who says that the main import we bring from China is to bring back dictatorship, censorship, communism, and, and how would you protect us from that if you if you would you know a couple of years ago i would i would laugh and kind of scoff at that comment but you know honestly in the last couple of years we've seen um really the true influence that um the chinese communist party has had over our own uh governmental decisions um you know the first defense obviously is to expose it that's the first defense shine a light on what's going on. So you inform uh, people, 
say, look, this is what's actually going on. This is what's happening. So that you can, with pe when people have the knowledge to properly start uh, examining issues, then it makes it easier to attack. The other way, of course, obviously, is we have to, we have to stop. There's this doublespeak when it comes to China. You know, President Biden will talk out of both sides of his mouth. And you hear this from all the politicians. They'll talk out of both sides of their mouth. Once, one minute they'll say how horrible China is. And then the next minute they'll praise, you know, some industry or something that came from China. I think, what was that, a couple of years back, the U.S. Army bought berets from China? I mean, really? I mean, that really did happen. And, you know, the soldiers were a little upset that, you know, they're wearing berets that said made in China. You know, that, that doesn't make any sense. We have to treat China for what it is, a threat. We have to respect them as that. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have trade with them. That doesn't mean that we can't engage with them. But it, it means that we, when we do that, we have to recognize that they're not our friend and that their end goal is not our happiness. Their end goal is, our, is control. You know, and uh, President Trump did a really good job modeling this when he was dealing with North Korea. You know, people said, oh, he's, he's bowing down to a dictator. No, he, he wasn't doing that. What he was doing was engaging with someone who is an enemy of this country. And what's the best way to deal with, a, with an enemy? Keep them close, right? Keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. You know, he was not, he was not um, blind to the fact of what North Korea was. You know, our politicians, our career politicians are so greedy that they, they don't care the end result of our relationship with China as long as they're getting wealthy. That's what they're doing. So the bottom line is we have to engage with China. China is a world power. We can't, we can't ignore them. They're not going to go away. We can't, can't stick our head in the sand and go, well, if we don't see them, then they're not a problem. We have to engage them, and we have to negotiate with them. But we have to negotiate with them from the right perspective. And that perspective is they're not our friend, and they have no intentions of being our friend. And if we, if we look at our negotiations from that aspect, I think we can better protect American interests. Shifting to a different subject, uh, you, your website also mentions that you're a big supporter of the Second Amendment. What is your position on national right to carry and how do you think it's consistent or inconsistent with federalism? The Second Amendment's in our Constitution. And when something like that is stated in our Constitution, it's a federally protected um, right, obviously. Um, national right to carry. I think if we can come up with a national standard, and that's the tricky part, okay? Because, you know, then you start getting into states' rights versus, you know, um, if there's a national standard, and, and again, if, if, the if the federal government says, okay, if you meet these minimum requirements, then you know your your state's carry laws will transfer to other states' carry laws. So I think we can set a minimum requirement 
for um, a national carry. And let me be let me be completely honest here. I 100% support the Second Amendment. I didn't grow up in a gun family. We didn't have guns growing up. I grew up in the suburbs. The first time I fired a weapon was when I was in the Marine Corps on the firing range. That's the first time I ever fired a weapon. And um, then once I left the Marines, I didn't have another weapon in my hand until I became a police officer many, many years later. We, in our family, we have many guns in our house. My wife is actually a country girl. She grew up in the rural part of South Carolina, grew up hunting. Um, so her family has lots of guns. We have guns in our house. I support any person's right to own a weapon because, again, the Second Amendment isn't about, you know, the left likes to say, well, our founding fathers never thought of an AR-15. Well, yeah, of course they didn't think of that, but that's also not why the Second Amendment was there. The Second Amendment is not there to protect my right to own a gun. The Second Amendment is there for me to be able to own a gun to protect myself from a tyrannical government. That's why the Second Amendment is there. And that's why it needs to remain there because that's part of our checks and balances. People don't understand that, but that is part of our checks and balances. And so as far as national right to carry, if we're going to do that, then I do believe that the federal government should create. And again, when, when I say that, we got to sit down with, you know, certain parties. We need to sit down with uh, the NRA. We need to sit down with anti-gun people. We all need to come to the table. We all need to come to that table. And we need to sit down and we need to say, okay, we're going to have a national right to carry Let's let's put some common sense to this and let's put some minimum guidelines. So if it's going to be a national right to carry, um, <clears throat> you know, maybe there's an age limit. You, know, you have to be 18 since that's for the age of military. I don't know. Um, I'm just throwing something out there. But the bottom line is, I think it could be done. Um, I'm sad that we're at a point where, you know, we have states and local communities that are having to pass Second Amendment sanctuary laws because of the attack that's coming against the Second Amendment to try to take away people's rights to bear arms. Um, you know, I'm very sad about that. And let me say this also, and I don't know if you know this, Ed, uh, Stephen, I'm sure you don't know this, but Ed, I'm not sure if you do. You know, when I was a police officer, my partner was murdered while he was standing right next to me, and I was shot, and I had to fight for my life. Now, you would think, and the person who shot us had an AK-47. And he was firing through the wall, ambushing us as, as we were knocking on the door. You know, you would think, well, gosh, you know, he must be anti-Second Amendment. No, I'm not. You know, that particular individual shouldn't have owned a weapon. He met the mental health guidelines. We just didn't, we didn't enforce the laws that were on the books. And that's the other problem with uh, people who want to attack the Second Amendment. And I'll say this flat out. They, they want to create more laws, but they won't enforce the laws that are on the books. As a police officer, I watched with my own eyes as convicted felons who committed a violent crime with a weapon had the weapon charge dismissed so that they wouldn't have a weapons charge on their record with their plea deal. Whenever it was a drug crime with a weapon, guess which charge was always dismissed? The weapons charge, because that always had a higher sentence to it. You know, enforce the laws we have on the books. Let's do that first. 
And then if you're not happy with the result, maybe we can talk. But again, until we do that, absolutely not. We shouldn't. In more laws, who's going to follow them? Just us, the law-abiding citizen. Criminals aren't going to follow the laws. So, yeah, I'm against anything that attacks our rights, uh, our Second Amendment rights. I will fight very hard to prevent any uh, reduction in our Second Amendment rights. And I'm always open to ideas to um, help promote um, safe and responsible gun ownership. Uh, the NRA has wonderful education programs that they provide families who teach their kids responsible um, gun ownership and gun practices, I think are, are wonderful. Um, I think those are very important parts of who we are as Americans. In a similar vein, uh, your, your website talks about border security. What, what, if any, new laws do you think we need in order to effectively secure the border? How about just any laws? How about some immigration laws, period? You know, when President Trump uh, was uh, first elected, we had a Republican-controlled House and we had a Republican-controlled Senate. And Miss Fox was in the House at that time. And he, you know, President Trump doesn't really beg for anything, but he begged Congress to come up with some le legitimate immigration legislation. And they did nothing. Absolutely nothing came out of that Republican-controlled Congress. Nothing at all. So how about we have some laws to start? So the first thing I would do, obviously, is, of course, I would work on securing the border physically. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a wall completely across. We can do wall. We can do technology. We can do increased border uh, patrol presence. You know, we need to talk more to the, the men and women who are actually doing the job on a day-to-day -day basis instead of the bureaucrats and find out what really works well in um, deterring uh, border crosses in a physical sense. Uh, and we need to work on that. So I think, you know, a combination of a wall technology and, and uh, stronger border uh, presence with our patrols and stuff, more personnel. Then you got to look at the laws themselves. We got to stop making it beneficial for people to come here illegally. I don't care if you come here illegally through the southern border or through an airport. That's illegal. People are doing it because there's benefits to that, right? They get benefits. They get free housing. They're getting medical care. They're getting education. They're getting all these things. Meanwhile, we've got homeless vets. We've got homeless families. And they're not getting put up in hotels. They're not getting, you know, free services. So we got to take away that that the benefit that makes it attractive for people to want to circumvent the legal way for us to come into this country. So we got to take away those benefits. Then we have to deal with the ones that are already here. And that's, that's what I'm really angry about. And that's what people don't understand with the literally hundreds of thousands of new illegal immigrants that have entered into this country in the last six months. We're not going to be able to deport all of them. Right. I mean, let's be real. We just, it's not possible. We can try, but it's not going to happen. So you're going to have children who were brought over here, whether it be uh, legitimately from their family, not legitimately because it was still illegal, but they were brought by actual family members to this country as babies. 
and they're raised in this country. Are you then going to take a 20 year old person who has, was brought to this nation? Not, they didn't make that choice. They were forced by their families into this nation. This is the only place they know is their home. Are we going to then deport them to some country that they don't even know the language maybe, but they definitely don't know the culture. What do we do with that? You know, and that's what people, that's what people don't understand the mess. This is a generational mess because it's not going to be fixed in our generation. This is a gener- This is something that our children are going to have to deal with and our grandchildren are going to have to deal with. You know, so what do you do with them? Is there a path to citizenship? I think there can be, maybe through civil service, maybe through military service. You know, I think there is a way to do that. But again, you have to be selective. You know, are we going to give someone a path to citizenship that's a criminal, who's a rapist, who's a murderer, someone who goes out and drinks and drives and kills a family? Are we going to give them a path to citizenship? You know, so there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration when you're talking about illegal immigration and the southern border and any border, actually. So the bottom line is we have to stop the flow first. You got to stop the flow, right? You got you to gotta put your finger in that dike and stop the water from coming out. And you got to repair it and make sure that no more water comes in. And then once you've done that, then you start dealing with what's already here. You start looking at, okay, first, maybe we need to prioritize getting anyone with a criminal record out of this country, adults. Boom, out, right? Then let's start taking a look at families. Okay, let's take a look at their situation, right? There has to be, we have to look at this as, from a common sense standpoint, right? And it, it's not going to be easy. I mean, they've created a, an economic disaster for this nation. I mean, we're writing checks that if you and I wrote them, we would be sent to jail. <laughs> we would be prosecuted for writing worthless checks. And that's what our government is doing. And they're making it worse with all the illegals that they're, they've allowed in. But we've got to stop the flow. We do it through proper border security, like I said, physical or technological barriers to prevent people from as much as we can from coming across this border. Then we take away the benefits that encourage people to come to this nation illegally. Maybe we should, maybe, here's a good idea, make it easier to apply for citizenship, maybe increase the benefits for doing it legally versus making it beneficial to do it illegally. Yeah, I don't know. Crazy ideas like that, like encourage people to do things the legal way. Woo! You know, that seems to be just a crazy idea sometimes. Um, So it's a very complex problem, and we have to look at it from many different um, aspects. But it it needs to be addressed. We can't keep punting this football down down the field. I think we're almost done. I've got a few more questions to ask, but I'm going to let Steve jump in and ask any questions he has right now while I sort of look at my notes here. No, I don't, I don't have any further questions, really. Okay. Um, 
your website mentions election integrity and security. What, what do you think you can do in Congress to ensure election integrity and security? Well, number one, personally, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to vote to certify any presidential election where there's some legitimate concerns about the, um, legal uh, aspects of that voting without a proper audit. Um, so that's the first thing I personally am, would do. Uh, I'm not, I, I refuse to do that. If there are legitimate concerns, then it needs to be audited. I, I think it, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but I just, I think it's funny that politicians on both sides of the aisle are against proving that an election was fair and honest. That just makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Why, if you believe it was fair and honest, why would you be against proving that it was fair and honest with a proper audit? You know, um, and I'll use me as an example. If, if I'm blessed to be elected to Congress and there is a question about the results that showed me as the winner, I will be the first person to stand up and demand an audit. I don't want to win under any kind of cloud of the possibility that there may have been some irregularities, whether they be purposeful or not. You know, if you believe that you honestly won, then prove it. If there's a question, stand behind what you say. Don't stand in the way. So that's the first thing that I personally would do in Congress. The second thing, of course, obviously, is I'm going to support those recommendations that were presented to Congress in 2005. Voter ID, right? They're demanding that we have vaccine IDs, but somehow voter IDs is discriminatory. Doesn't make any sense. You have to have an ID to do anything in this country, right? And if we, if we can go door to door, like the Biden administration wants to do to find out your vaccine status, I would think we're door to door to be able to go and help someone get an ID who doesn't have an ID so that they can vote. So I would support voter IDs. I support more secure and limiting mail-in mail voting ballots. I do not support the wholesale sending out of mail-in ballots if someone doesn't request it. I think that needs to be requested and there needs to be some sort of security to ensure that the person who sent in that ballot was the person they say they are. Whether it be providing your ID number, the last four years social security number, something to ensure that uh, what you're sent, the person sending in the ballot is that person. Voting machines should not have any type of access or any way that the internet or Wi-Fi should be able to uh, access them. Uh, that was something even in 2005, they said, we need, to, we need secure voting machines. And why are we going outside of this nation to get programs for our voting machines and voting machines? Why, can we not produce that here in this country? I mean, we can land a rover on Mars, but we can't figure out how to create a voting machine that's not going to be hacked. Uh, to me, that's just, that's unthinkable. Um, we also need to go through and clean out our voter registration rolls, make sure that we don't have uh, dead people on those rolls. We don't have people voting in multiple states. Um, those are things that 
uh, need to happen as well. You, well, let me, two questions about that. First, what do you think about states like uh, in the last week or so, uh, Maricopa County, Arizona and uh, Dominion refused to comply with a subpoena that the Arizona legislature had sent as pursuant to the audit. What is, what is your thought about contracting out counting of the votes in the first place? Well, I'm, I'm against, um, again, this, the whole Dominion voting thing was just a debacle. Um, again, that's a foreign owned company. And, you know, we have laws that say that's not supposed to happen, but somehow it does. But even if it were a domestic company, I mean, it's still, what do you think about private entities counting the votes like that? Again, there's no simple, you know, there's no simple answer, you know, to say, well, uh, we can't have any private entities doing that. It's going to be just the government. Well, you know, that you're still opening, there's still ways to circumvent fair elections no matter what I and mean, we've had corrupt corrupted elections in our nation for decades if not you know, really since uh since the founding of this nation you know and so there's always going to be some sort of corruption the what i hate and what bothers me more than anything is that we've accepted that some corruption is okay you know we should always be looking to get to a zero percent um corruption, 0% um, fraud, fraudulent election. Um, we should always be striving for that. And anytime there's any semblance of fraud, we should be investigating it. So to answer your question, you know, I, I honestly think there, there has to be a balance between the private sector and the public sector when it comes to this. I, the, again, when we start putting the government in control of everything, um, we open ourselves up to the, the the red tape and the mess that bureaucracy creates and you know sometimes private industry can provide us with um viable and um really effective tools but we can we can properly manage that as a as a federal government state government and so forth and you bring up a good point, and, and it reiterates what I said. If everything was fair and proper in Maricopa County, why are they fighting? Just give over the information. Right. You know? But aren't there certain things that are proper government functions? I mean, seems to me that counting the votes in an election seems like a pretty basic government function. I mean, it should be, op it should be a process. If it's done by the government, then it's, Got, then it should be done in, in, in the open. But private companies then get to hide behind things like intellectual property, patents, uh, you know, business, you know, you know, proprietary business information. Um, it seems like bringing the private sector in creates more problems than it solves to me. But I see, I see what you're asking, and I apologize. I kind of misunderstood what you were what you were getting at. So you're you're absolutely right. However, the federal government can say to a private company, and it happens all the time, look, if you want to enter into this contract with us, you must A, B, C, D, and E, period. Entering into this contract with the federal government, you know, you agree to this, 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 and this. If you don't want to agree to this, then fine. 
you don't have to take this contract. The federal government does that all the time. So there are there are um, ways to which you can properly manage those kind of um, issues when dealing with private companies in the manner of like election counting and things of that nature. But we didn't even do that. I mean, we didn't even follow our own rules with Dominion. I mean, that we violated our own rules. The rules for these voting machines is they're supposed to be manufactured, controlled, their servers, everything within this nation. And we know that Dominion had servers in Germany. We know that they, um, they are not an American nation, uh, excuse me, an American company. They're owned by a conglomerate of different people from all over. So, I mean, you know, it's, again, it, it's about people doing the right thing. So, yes, we can prevent what you're talking about if we have private industry coming in, if we have the right kind of policies and rules and regulations to follow. Do you think the federal government has any proper role in um, in telling the states how to conduct their elections? No. Based on the Constitution, no. But the federal government does have a role in saying that if you did not follow your own state constitution like Pennsylvania did, we're not going to certify your election results. That's, well, that's, the, that's the check and balance. So... You know, the states have a right to run their elections. They have the right to create their laws. They're, and again, it's within the Constitution. The Constitution is that general framework, right? The states have a right to run their elections. However, the federal government has a right, especially when you're talking about national elections, right? The federal government, I believe, has a right to say, if you violate your own state laws by not going through your state legislature to make these changes that is clearly stated in your state laws, we will not certify your national election results. So if a state wants to allow no voter ID, mail-in balloting, voter, voter you know, harvesting of ballots, the federal government has no say in, in, over, in countermanding that. Is that no, what there's... No, there's a difference now. There's a difference when we're talking about um, when we're talking about voter integrity and the way that elections are run, okay, uh, and voter security. The federal government, and again, once again, I point to the commission in 2005 who went through all this. You know, the the federal government and the Constitution sets the standard, the minimum standard, right? We set the standard. And then states can be more restrictive as long as it doesn't violate personal rights, but they can't be less restrictive than what the federal government standards are. And so the federal government does have a role in setting what those general standards are. Like, you got to prove who you are to vote in a national election, especially, especially when we're talking national elections. You know, maybe you can talk about local elections. They can make their own decisions more locally. But when you're talking about national elections, when you're dealing with positions that are going to affect more than just your local community, if I'm elected to Congress, yes, I'm there to represent the 5th District. But my voice and our voice of the 5th District is going to influence more than just the 5th District of North Carolina. 
So there should be some sort of standards, minimum standards set at the federal government level. But we're not going to tell the states, you know, how you run your election. My last question may be a little bit of an oddball question, but have you given any thought to a digital currency and whether the federal government should or should not implement a, a digital currency? <laughs> You know, I'll be honest with you, that stuff scares the mess out of me. I honestly, um, cryptocurrency is something I don't fully understand. I don't want to understand. I was talking just the other day about uh, how a few years ago, when debit cards start becoming became a thing, and, uh, you know, we remember this, but, you know, young kids today don't have any clue, but we remember when you had cash for everything. You know, you had to pay for everything in cash. And I remember when McDonald's started to accept debit cards for payment. And I laughed. I was like, man, that's funny. Who's going to go to McDonald's and pay with a debit card? You know, just pull out two bucks and, you know, pay for your meal. And now every time I go to McDonald's, I use my debit card. You know, so I've, I've kind of given in to this idea of, of um, electronic transactions. Um, but when it comes to actual currency, you know, there, there's way to, um, uh, there's way too much um, possibilities for manipulation. Um, you know, regular currency is, uh, you know, uh, is open for manipulation. But when you talk about cryptocurrency, uh, the opportunities for, for fraud, for for um, destroying of actual economies, is 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 so rampant. I mean, I, I've been you know you hear every once in a while like uh, Tesla or Elon Musk and the whole uh, Bitcoin thing, and his involvement or not involvement in Bitcoin sent Bitcoin all over the place, and that's just crazy. That one one particular person's opinion about that kind of the about a currency send its value up or down to the toilet and i think that if we go that route then we're setting ourselves up for an economic i i think it would be an economic disaster if we went that route as a nation and i wouldn't support it at all okay <clears throat> I don't have anything else, Steve, if you want to clean up with anything. No, I just want to thank you for the incredible amount of time and uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for now? Oh my gosh. The cogency of your answers, but that's not the right word. I can't think of the right word. This <laughs> and also um, contact information that you want to share with the public, how they can support you, et cetera. Learn more about it. Yes. You. Good, good call, Steve. You want me to type that into the chat for y'all or? Well, you can just say it for anybody watching this also. Sure. How best to help you, to reach you, to learn more about you. Uh, well, first, obviously, uh, please go to our website. It's www.ackerman, A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N, for F-O-R-N-C.com. So Ackerman4NC.com. That'll take you straight to our website. And on our website, the, it has um, all the other ways that you can contact me through direct email. I love to hear from people. 
I will be doing a live stream here starting at eight o'clock on my Facebook campaign page. I do it every Wednesday at eight o'clock. It's an opportunity. If anybody wants to ask me questions directly, I'll be happy to answer them. Um, but I always try to talk about issues and topics that are, um, you know, of interest to the district. Um, but the best way is just to go to our website. And if you do support us, if you do like what you heard tonight and you take a look at the website and, and you like what you see, uh, we are a grassroots campaign and we are an anti-establishment campaign. Uh, we are going up against uh, an incumbent who has the, the establishment behind her. Uh, they have a lot of money behind her. Um, my goal is to defeat the establishment. And uh, to do that, I need your help. And uh, I always tell people every time that if you take the time to invest in our campaign, and it's not a donation, it's an investment. I want to make sure you get the best return on that investment. And to do that, it's by me listening and hearing what you say and taking your voices and bringing your voices to Washington, D.C. and not make it my voice. And I have to tell you, you, you remind me of the tagline that we use at Liberty Block, which I've tried to explain to people. If you don't work against the government now, you're going to work for them later. And you don't have a choice not to fight. Because people think, oh, I can't get involved. I don't have the time and I have the money. Well, guess what? They're going to take your money. So you can fight them for $100 or they can take $1,000. And there really is no choice. So that's kind of what you're saying. And I agree with you. And I, and I appreciate that. And, you know, what I always tell people, and the way this is supposed to work, and, and that's why I like to use the term investing in our campaign instead of donating, is, again, you invest in us. If we don't give you the return, if I don't give you the return on your investment, vote me out. That's the way it's supposed to work. And we've gotten to a point now where we just continuously vote these incumbents back into office just because it's the convenient thing to do or the easy thing to do. But it's not necessarily the right thing to do because when you really look at what have they done for me lately, right? Have I gotten a return on my investment? You know, and if the answer is no, then it's time for them to go to to go on to other pursuits. And I will I want to I do want to say this really quick for all of your uh, listeners and watchers. Um, I do pledge, and it's in everything that I I say and I do that if I am elected to Congress, I will serve only eight years in Congress. I'm not there to be a career politician. I have no desires to be one. Um, I, I plan to model exactly the things that I say. Um, so when I say eight years in Congress, it doesn't mean eight years in the House and then I'll skip over to the Senate for a couple terms and then I'll go do something. Else. No, eight years and that's it. Because that's what, especially the House of Representatives, that's what it was designed to be. It was designed to be the people's house. It was designed to have a lot of turnover so that the people could feel directly connected with national politics. Okay. Well, okay. with that, we bid you best of luck and a wonderful evening. Thank you, Michael. Thank you all very much. I really enjoyed it.